morning, everyone. My name is R. Dallas Green. Glad you're here, Grace. This morning, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel, and then we'll work our way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting um, 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses, and then we'll work our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I have some good news. Um, this coming Saturday, September 26th, Jimmy, my 30-year-old son, will marry, will get married. Uh, Debbie and I will be traveling down this week. He's marrying a young woman named Margaret Spock um, of California. She, uh, the wedding will happen in Clarksville, Tennessee. Um, Margaret is a, a dentist in the United States Army. Her clinic was called the Smoke Bomb Clinic. Um, she takes care of the Special Forces. Jimmy is a Green Beret. And Jimmy uh, most likely will be deployed on or about October 1st. So they'll have about four days together before uh, he heads out. I guess that's what she signed up for, and uh, that's what she signed up for. But it's like getting ready for a test, you know. He spent three years in Green Beret, Green Beret training. Now he's had his 12 men, and finally tests will come. One of the things that Jimmy did, and what made me think about this story, was some of the things Jimmy did was in high school, he ran track and cross country. And there was this guy, kind of legendary guy, <clears throat> who always finished in the top three in his cross-country event. He, uh, except in one event, he finished last, which I'm going to tell you about. <clears throat> now, in cross-country, for those of you who've run track or know about track, typically what happens is you arrive early and you walk the course because you've never seen the course before, so you get there and you kind of survey the landscape, you know, what you have to deal with on this course. But in this case, this bus arrived late. And this guy on the bus rode the whole way there with his headphones on, kind of looking like Michael Phelps trying to get his game on. I was going to show you this one for an illustration, but my ear thing fell off. But imagine it's actually working. And uh, he put on these, his headphones, you know, and he's kind of like on the bus listening to music. Well, <clears throat> he warmed up, but when he, was war when he was warming up, the team was warming up, he had his headphones on not listening to the coach's instruction. Now, the coach was saying something to the runners, kind of waving his arms kind of demonstrably, but he had his headphones on listening to music. And so they came to the starting blocks, and the race started. It was a 5K race, <clears throat> and a guy took off very quickly, and he took the lead. The part of the pathway was through the woods, <clears throat> and they came to a fork in the road, the 4K mark. Now, there's only one, K, one kilometer left, and at the fourth road, there was two ways to go. You could either go to the right and take the blue arrow or go left with the yellow arrow. Now, he's way out in front, and the second place runner wasn't even in sight, but he figured that I'll just take the blue arrow, go to the right, because it seems like the way to go to go to the right. He didn't know which way to go. Now, the coach had explained to him before the race that the blue arrow to the right is not the right way to go. The way to go is the left arrow, the yellow arrow. He took a path that was on a 7K loop. So, can you imagine? Okay, he's leading the race. He comes to this fork in the road. He goes the wrong way. He goes another 7K. He turned the race into an 11K race. And when he finished, the team was on the bus. And the bus was the only one in the parking lot. He, um, 
He just ran into the bus and put his headphones on and went on. The point is that no matter how hard you run, it doesn't matter if you run in the wrong direction. I sometimes think about COVID and the pandemic we're in is that we're in this place in the road. We have this fork in the road where we make a decision as to whether we're going to continue on the path we've been on or make a change at this moment in history. And we all can find ourselves in a loop, right? Let's call one the COVID loop. I'm just feeling tired and weary of wearing these masks. I'm just waiting for this vaccine to come out. I'm afraid it won't happen this year. I'm exhausted. I'm wrung out. I'm weary. Your loop may be this COVID virus loop. Or maybe your loop is the election loop. Feeling we need another four more years or feeling this country can't survive another four years. So you're watching the news incessantly, kind of figuring out where these candidates stand. You're feeling pretty emotionally vested. So in other ways, we, we all have this race that we're running, right? And some of us are running hard, and some of us are running in the wrong direction. So to steer people in the right direction, Paul gave us the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. I know there's many things on your mind. I know you're preoccupied with all different kinds of matters. You're preoccupied with your school or your work. You're preoccupied with so many things. But I want to remind you of the gospel. Paul himself was a gospel-centered man. He was focused on the gospel. And he lived a gospel-centered life. The gospel to him was very precious and very beautiful. Because the gospel means good news. The gospel will always be good news. The gospel is always better news than the news of this world because this is the news that God wants us to hear. And some people have mixed up the gospel with religion and with legalism. Legalism is the elevation of non-biblical rules requiring other people to keep them in order to be in good standing, but it's not the gospel. Maybe you grew up in a church where there were lots of rules. You couldn't listen to music with certain beats. You couldn't dance. I get asked the question all the time, can Christians dance? And I say, well, some can and some can't. <laughs> you couldn't go to movies. You couldn't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do. You see, legalism is a perversion of the gospel. Legalism is what the Pharisees practiced. They felt their rules set them apart, made them better, and they looked down on other people believing they achieved their righteousness by keeping the law. And Paul would say that no one will be justified by their keeping of the law. The law sets the standard, but the law does not give us the ability to obey. One of the Pharisees, his name was Nicodemus, a very self-righteous man, came to Jesus by night. And he said, we know, teacher, that you come from God because no one can do the miracles you do unless God were with him. And Jesus said to that very religious man, you must be born again. So legalism isn't the answer. <clears throat> and the other side is licentiousness. Some people don't like to talk about the wrath of God, sin, and judgment. They try to be politically correct. 
They make a large tent for all the philosophies, all the theologies to camp under. They say you need to be inclusive, not exclusive, non-judgmental, open, affirming. We believe that, they believe that revelation is progressive. I mean, God defined marriage, but let's redefine marriage. So they put the burden on people to agree with them. And if you disagree, you're considered intolerant. The gospel is too narrow, they say. So what is this gospel? It isn't a list of rules that we need to keep. That creates a burden. It isn't being open to anything and everything. That creates a burden. The gospel concerns the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel pertains to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And Jesus didn't come to lay burdens on people. He said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and you'll find rest. There's great power in the gospel. Paul would say that it's the power of God unto salvation. Because the gospel relieves us of the burden of sin and of guilt and shame and the fear of the future. You see, the gospel takes the burdens off. William Holland was a friend of John and Charles Wesley. They were reading Luther's preface, his commentary, his preface to the book of Galatians. And John Wesley read the preface, and this is the question. What have we nothing to do? And the answer was, no, nothing but accept him. What have we to do in order to earn the favor of God? How do we get in good relationship with God? What have we to do? And the answer Luther gave was, no, nothing but accept him. At that moment, William said that there was a power that came over me, and my burden was lifted, and he burst into tears, and he felt the very peace of God. So the question is, what is the gospel? The gospel in very simple terms is that which a child can know and learn the gospel. That Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven to come down to earth. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. That Jesus stepped into humanity, the very Son of God. And Jesus himself, as a young man, would have seen tragedies and trials. We have no record of his father after he was 12 years old. Most likely, Joseph, who was a carpenter, would have died. And Jesus, being the firstborn, would have supported his family. He knew the pressure of taking care of one's family. But at 30, he left home to begin his ministry. He was a man of compassion who earned his credibility. And he went around doing good to people, performing miracles and healing people, teaching. But the religious leaders became jealous of him. And they plotted against him enticing one of his own disciples, Judas, to betray him. And they crucified him on a cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem on a Friday. And the sky grew black as God's judgment fell on him. It was there on the cross that Jesus became sin. He had lived a life that we couldn't live. He died a death we should have died because he was crucified for our sins. And they laid him in a tomb. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead, because the grave could not keep him. The grave could not hold him. 
I just want to remind you, Paul's saying here in Corinthians, I just want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel that when I came to your city, I preached to you. The gospel that you received. The gospel on which you've taken your stand. And by this gospel, you are saved. The word saved there is the word sozo, meaning rescued or delivered. God would deliver us. He would rescue us, believing the gospel. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, that's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You see, many people have understood the gospel to be the beginning step of Christianity because without the gospel, people are lost. You understand that, right? That without the gospel, believing the gospel, people are lost. It doesn't matter how much good you do in the world if we don't preach the gospel. If we go into the prison and proclaim to the prisoner, anything but the gospel, the prisoner will never be free. If we do medical work in the world and work to heal the sick, but we do not proclaim the gospel, the body may heal, but the soul is lost. If we work among the poor, giving food to the hungry and clothes to the naked and shelter to the homeless, but we do not proclaim the gospel, the people are still lost. You see, without the gospel, people are lost. And I want to remind you, Paul's saying, of the gospel I preached to you when I, when I came to your city by which you are saved, on which you've taken your stand. I think what he's saying here is there's two aspects to salvation. The first of them is positional salvation. When you receive Christ, all your sins are forgiven. You are given the righteousness of Christ. You are adopted into God's family and given the Holy Spirit. And that happens instantaneously. But I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about being saved, progressive sanctification. He's referring to our growth in maturity, Christ-likeness. How does it happen? How does a person grow in their faith? Where is the power for the growth? The power comes from the Holy Spirit by believing the gospel. You see, many people believe the gospel is only the entry point for Christianity. The gospel is like diving off the swimming board, the diving board, and jumping in the pool. But the gospel is beautiful because when we hold fast to the gospel, that's how we grow, by re-believing it, by meditating on it. You see, the fuel for the Christian life comes from being soaked in what Christ has done. So with that opening word, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's what it reads in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you this gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God 
who tests our heart. You know, we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from men, not from you or anybody else. Paul now writing this letter back to the Thessalonians, whom he had been with several months before, is come under, coming under attack. Paul has critics in Thessalonica, and in order to undermine his authority in the gospel, they try to discredit him with a smear campaign. You see, wherever the gospel goes, there will be those that believe the message, and then there will be those that try to undermine the, mess the message. They will try to add to the message, or they'll try to subtract from the message. Have you ever been under attack? Those of you who have been through divorce probably have experienced some level of attack. Those of you who have been in legal proceedings have known what, what it means to have someone attack you. In this case, his opponents are attacking his credentials and his motives and his message. I mean, our president has been under attack much with the COVID-19 crisis. He didn't do enough to um, prepare us with the PPEs. He didn't take it seriously. He didn't order a mandate for all masks to be worn. Didn't have enough ventilators. So any person in any position of leadership has understood something about criticism and attack. You see, the gospel was given to Paul by revelation. And Paul coming under attack to combat these attacks, he begins to uh, talk about his own personal experience with them. Look at verse 2. It says, as you know, we suffered in Philippi. Verse 5, you know we never used flattery. Verse 9, surely you remember our toil and hardship. Verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God. Verse 11, for you know we dealt with you just as a father deals with his own children. In the first chapter, what Paul does is he says to them in verse 5, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Pastors need to remember that their lives are models of faith for other believers. When a pastor fails to live properly, he undermines the faith of believers in the church. And God will hold him to a higher standard. When somebody sees a pastor not living up to the standard, it could cause them to stumble. So Paul is calling to their minds the life he consistently lived among them. Paul himself did not veer off the path. They became followers of him and of the Lord. He became a model for them of the Christian faith. It says that they became imitators of Paul. Now, one of the things you need to understand about imitation is the way we learn is through imitation. It's a great tribute to Paul and to his team that the believers there in Thessalonica were looking at his example. Because if you want to be a person of the word, you want to hang around with people who study the word. And if you want to be a person of prayer, you want to be around people that know how to pray. And if you want to be a witness, you want to be around people that know how to share their faith. See, what Paul is doing here is he is establishing his credibility. 
Credibility, and if you want to be used of the Lord, you have to establish credibility, that is, honesty and integrity. Credibility is to be trusted, to be believed in. I mean, who has credibility? It's the person you trust and you believe in. Who has credibility as a teacher? The teacher who's been in the trenches, who's been effective with her students. Who has credibility as a soldier? A soldier who's also been in the trenches, who's been in the fight, and can tell you how it really is. Who has credibility as a president? The one who you believe what he says. The one whose beliefs are consistent with yours. The one you can trust. You see, Paul's life lined up with his message. His life was one of credibility. He says, you yourselves know that our visit to you, verse 1, was not a failure. The fact that there was now a church in Thessalonica is proof that his visit to them was not a failure. There were new believers being added to the church. Their faith, it says, was working. Their love was laboring. Their hope was persevering. See, the gospel came to them not only with words, but also with conviction. And they became imitators of Paul and of the Lord. And their faith became known to everyone. And they turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, what had happened was, in Paul's absence, infiltration had happened. Critics had begun taking pot shots at Paul. They were making aspersions onto his character. So here's the big point. If you can undermine the ministry of the pastor, you can undermine the ministry of the church. If Paul's truth is undermined, the false teachers could take the church over. A divided house could not stand. They could have questioned Paul's credentials. They could have said he really isn't one of the original 12. He's not one of the apostles. So we don't really have to listen to what he had to say. What's happening now is people have infiltrated, calling into question his apostleship, who he is and what he said. Secondly, about credibility. Credibility is established by suffering for the faith and remaining true to Jesus. How does Paul establish his credibility? Look at verse 2. You yourselves know we previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. When Paul came to the city of Philippi, you remember, there was a woman there who was a slave, and she was a fortune teller. And she kept saying, these men are servants of the Most High. They're telling you how to be saved. And Paul became very annoyed, and he cast the spirit out of her. And her slave owners became very upset with Paul, and they caused a riot. There was a mob. And Paul himself was arrested. He faced an unjust arrestment, an unjust beating. They took a rod and they began to beat Paul and Silas. And they threw them into jail. And all this happened in the city of Philippi. You see, being beaten, Paul did not stop. 
Credibility comes from having suffered for his faith in Jesus and remaining faithful. He's saying, you're aware of what took place. You saw my bruised, swollen body. We came to your city. We dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. We were courageous. We were bold. You see, this courage and boldness established his credibility. I want to say this, that every true shepherd has wounds from ministry. Paul himself, if he took off his shirt, you could see the wounds on his back. You look at your pastor's arms, you will find wounds. For every pastor has been wounded, fighting to protect the people, trying to bring about correction in someone's life, dealing with an antagonist. See, true pastors carry their wounds and establish credibility. He had amazing courage and boldness, given what happened to him in the previous city, to carry on. His boldness and courage enabled him to preach and to persevere and to care. You see, many people dilute the gospel. They're afraid of offending somebody. They want to take away the rough edges of the gospel that create discomfort. They just want to soothe people and please people. But this is what you need to know. In order to be right with God, you have to know that there's something wrong. And Paul dares to tell them the truth. He tells them, dares to tell them the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 3. For the appeal that we make does not spring from error. An appeal is an exhortation and urging for them to take a particular line of action. He's exhorting them to do something. For the exhortation we make does not spring from error. Error has a reference to a polluted source. We're not trying to lead you astray. We're not trying to give you a diluted message. We're teaching you the truth. He would say to the Corinthians these words, My preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest upon man's wisdom, but upon God's power. Our motives were pure. We were not trying to make personal profit. We were not trying to make money off of you. We weren't using our friendships with you to sell you something. You know, one of the things I find very interesting about some of my pastor friends is how many business ventures they have on the side of selling vitamins. One of, one of uh, people I know of, he had an airplane, and he was an Amway distributor. And he would get people on his airplane and present his presentation. And one of my friends who was flying with him said, I just wish I could have got off the airplane. What I'm trying to say is that Paul is saying I'm different than those that are charlatans, that are hucksters, that are peddling the word of God for profit. Unlike so many who peddle the word for profit, on the contrary, we speak before God with sincerity as men sent from God. We didn't use deceit. Deceit speaks here of catching fish with bait. We weren't using deception. 
with impure motives, with trickery. Look at verse two, 4, I mean. But on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God, as entrusted with the gospel. Do you understand that Paul had been tested? He had been tried. He had been approved of. That the testings that came into his life, the trials that came into his life, God saw those trials and those testings and approved of him, had given him his assignment. He was entrusted with the gospel. What an amazing thing that God entrusts to us this gospel, that God has put into our hands the ability to live out the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. And we were not trying to please men, he says. God tests our heart. We never use flattery. You know the difference between flattery and gossip? Flattery is when someone says to your face what they'd never say behind your back. And gossip is what someone would say behind your back they would never say to your face. And Paul is saying that we didn't use flattery with you. We didn't just butter you up and appeal to your vanity. We spoke to you the truth. We came to town to preach Christ and Christ crucified. He's making a defense of his motives as to why he did what he did. We weren't looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. You see, Christianity does not lay burdens on people's backs. The false teachers were primarily concerned with money, with a profit motive. Those who want to get rich, Paul said, fall into a trap and temptation, into many harmful and deceitful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all different kinds of evil. And some longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What Paul is saying is my motivation was not about making myself rich. So what was his true motivation? Look at verse number seven and following. He said, But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. What Paul talks about here is the tender care of a mother. Our love for you was tender and gentle. Tender care primarily refers to the warmth of body heat. It's a picture of a loving mother who would take her infant in her arms to warm the child with her own body heat. And metaphorically, it means to cherish somebody with a tender kind of love. You know, it takes time and energy to care for children, especially newborns. Paul preached the gospel to them, and they believed the message and they were birthed into the kingdom, and they were nurtured and cared for, cherished by him. They were well-fed. The nursing mother is someone who nourishes, who feeds and cares for the child. You could say it this way, that Paul didn't feed on them, he fed them. That was his enormous heart for the church, this picture of tender, intimate love. I mean, nothing can match this, can it? 
There's nothing more tender or more intimate than a nursing mother with her newborn babe, giving this little child the gift of life, spending herself for the child. It's a love that thinks nothing of herself and only of the, of the child. I've shared with pastors now all over the world, don't just give them your notes, but give them your heart. Because people can always read your notes, but they can't see your heart unless you give your heart. Paul says, I laid my life down for you. Moms know what it means to lay down your lives for your little ones. A nurturing love, a caring love. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother. To nurse a baby is to get very close to them. And the nursing baby feeds upon her mom. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our very own lives. You say, where does this affection come from? This affection that Paul felt for these new believers. Paul knew something of the affection that God had for him, the fondness of God for him. Do you know how fond God is of you? Do you know how crazy in love God is of you? If God had a refrigerator, he'd have your picture on it. If God had a cell phone, you'd be the screensaver. <laughs> you'd at least pop up because he thinks about you all the time. You're never far from his heart. He's always thinking of you. And Paul had this enormous affection for these believers. Affection is a strong feeling of attachment. You could say he had this strong yearning in his heart for them. We gave you not only the message, but we also gave you our lives. He imparted to them something and incarnated something to them. You see, what I believe happened here, church, is that Paul did life with these believers. He shared his life with them. He knew about their marriages. He knew about their relationships. He knew about their past. He knew about their struggles, their trials. He knew about their disappointments. He knew over their sicknesses. He prayed over them. He encouraged them. He was like a mother caring for his people. You know what you need in your life in the midst of COVID? You need to be part of a community. You be with other brothers and sisters. It may be on Zoom. It may be live. But you need to be a place where you can become known and you can know other people. Where you can become loved and love other people. Where you can connect with each other and connect with God. We all need to be part of community with one another. And what Paul is saying is, we not only shared the gospel with you, but we also shared our lives. We opened up our lives to one another. We became close. We got connected. Paul was a tent maker, as you know. I'm sure the people would have come to his tent. And there were sailors, you know, that came into Thessalonica. And Paul would have made tents for them. And merchants on the road, the Ignatian Road, where Paul would have made tents for them. You see, he was active in the marketplace. He was involved in people's lives. He was like a mother. He says in verse 9, look, it says in verse 9, Surely remember, brothers, 
our toil and hardship. We worked night and day not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. We didn't want to be a burden to you. As apostles, we could have asserted our right and asked for you to pay. I mean, nobody has a vineyard who doesn't gather the grapes. Nobody has a cow that doesn't get the milk. No one has a farm that doesn't get the produce. A person should get their living from the gospel. But Paul did not impose that burden upon them. He worked as a tent maker. He worked by day as a tent maker, and he preached the gospel by night. Surely remember that. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses of these things, and so is of God, of how holy, how set apart, and righteous, and blameless, above reproach, we were among you who believed. Look at verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of the gospel who calls you into his kingdom and glory. I model to you how to live a godly life. I explain to you how to live the Christian life. First of all, he was mild and tender like a mother, but then he was strong like a father. He treated them like a father. You know that uh, in America, Father's Day is diminishing? Many homes don't have a dad. Some were raised in families without a dad and, or the dad was emotionally distant. So many uh, single-parent homes now. Children raised with um, involved fathers are the children of fathers who are involved are less likely to struggle academically. Did you know that? And involved fathers, the children are less likely to be expelled out of school. And involved fathers, the children are less likely to drop out of school and less likely, if they're a girl, to get pregnant. Someone asked the question, are fathers really even necessary? Are they just a, another pair of hands, the other parent? Is a father really necessary? A father, so many have said that a father, we don't really need a father. Fathers have been erased from families. But here's what I want you to hear. Dads are important. Dads give insight to your kids. Dads show their kids what masculinity is. You see, Paul encouraged them, which means to call forth courage. What a man does is he launches his children into their lives. A son cannot be launched into life without a man behind him, encouraging him. A father teaches his children right from wrong. A father teaches his kids how to be resilient, how to persevere when it's difficult to not quit what you start. You see, children need encouragement, and children need exhortation, and children need to be strengthened. Sometimes one of our kids will call, and Debbie will say, all right, I think you better take this call. I think this one's for you. Now, our kids will call mom for money, but they'll call dad for advice. 
Well, that's not always true. But kids need a father. They need someone who can comfort them in the trials and tribulations, the difficulties of life. They need someone to encourage them day after day because life can get difficult. They need someone to strengthen them. When there's a breakup, saying words like, I didn't like him anyhow. Um, my son, Chris, he played on a team where they lost every game, every soccer game. They were, you know, suited up to play, and they lost every game. And I developed a phrase. It was like, we're going to have a nice lunch no matter what. <laughs> That's what daddies do. They encourage. They comfort. They strengthen. The Proverbs, if you read the Proverbs, it's really all about the father giving counsel to his sons, his children, on how to live out the Christian life, how to live the, the life you see, a father is really important. And so I want to conclu conclude by saying this. There's compassion, right? If you want to be used of God, you have to show compassion, have heart and love. And compassion is manifested by the gentleness of a mother and the example and the teaching of a father. He exhorted them to live lives worthy of God who calls them into their kingdom and his glory. See, Paul was a great example. What he really wanted to do was he wanted to root these believers in the faith. He wanted them to stand firm in the pressures of life. He wanted them not to wilt in the afflictions. He wanted them to persevere through the hardships. And he is himself a personal example of somebody who did not quit when it was difficult. And so he, he brings up the example of a mother and a father in beautiful balance as to how he did ministry. Would you pray with me? Father, we've gathered in the name of Jesus because we're working our way through this book and we're seeing, God, how you use the gospel and how you want to use the gospel in our lives, that we be gospel-centered people, that we would love much because we've been loved much. We would forgive much because we've been much forgiven. We would be people with credibility because we have, our words have become believed and trusted because we have weathered the storms. We've been in the trenches. You have evoked within us compassion, this feeling of empathy and sympathy for one another because we have felt pain. God, you want to use us for your kingdom's sake. You want us to imitate Jesus and to follow after him. So God, would you form his life in our life? Could we form groups, Lord, where we can be a mother and a father to one another? Loving on each other, being gentle, compassionate, straightforward, truthful, would you give us a yearning, a longing to connect with others in groups? Would you allow us, Lord, to form community with one another? 
even in the midst of this awful pandemic. We ask, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you know how you can tell when you've heard the gospel, received the gospel? Always leads to joy. There's always in our inner person this rejoicing in the goodness of God. That God loves me that much. It's an unshakable, unquenchable love. It's a love that sets us free. It's a love that rescues us and delivers us. It's a powerful love. Our nation, as we've spoken of many times, finds itself right in the middle of a crossroads. And there's going to be a huge prayer rally this coming Saturday. I'll be in Clarksville, Tennessee. But uh, Jenny's going down to the rally. It's going to be thousands of Christians praying for our country, beginning at the Lincoln Memorial and walking through the city, praying over the city, praying about where we are, about a move of God's spirit. My personal prayer for America is that we might awaken to the gospel and turn back to God. And we might see a tremendous shift in our nation from all the polarity and division, hatred, rancor, into unity, peace. So, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we live in this country, but we're citizens of another place. We're citizens of heaven. You, we belong to you, Lord. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. These lives are your life, Lord. We want to live our lives to your glory for your kingdom. We want to see a move of your spirit in our nation, Lord. So we pray for a stirring, an awakening. We pray for a turning, a turning away from the patterns we're in to a pattern, Lord, of loving you, of honoring you, of putting you first. So, Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for the upcoming election that you would give to each one of us direction through your spirit as to how to vote. Lord, would you allow our elected officials to have your heart, to have your mind, to follow your will. We pray for a great change in our nation. You say, if your people who are called by your name shall humble themselves and pray and confess their sins, turning away from their iniquity, you will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Heal our land, God, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next time.